0: This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous
1: vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books.
0: But the most important thing for me is uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it.
1: Early in the technology, uh, a thousand
0: flowers should bloom. Welcome back to Season 2 of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kyrouz. Today, we're talking with Riley Brennan. He's a founding general partner at Trucks VC, a seed stage venture capital fund investing in transportation. He holds a teaching appointment at Stanford, and he writes the influential newsletter, The Future of Transportation. Riley, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. I really appreciate it.
0: So you've been involved in transportation and autonomous vehicles for quite some time. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to start investing in uh, transportation startups.
1: Yeah, I started really as somebody who loved cars. You know, who had posters of cars on my wall um, growing up, and I really loved that part of it. Loved motorsports. I was really about the object. Uh, that was probably year zero through you know maybe thirty. Was that would describe how I thought about transportation. And then, you know, about 10 years ago, I moved to California, uh, and in that time, my eyes started to be open to things that were not just the car itself, you know, robotics and software and things that were going to change the car, but also the impact of vehicles. And I started to look at other types of transportation, so sometime around, you know, 10 years ago, I had this maybe metamorphosis from a car person to a transportation person. And it's also the time I started to see uh, a lot of founders who were leaving research labs, particularly at Stanford where I teach, um, who weren't were not able to get financing for ideas. And it's kind of a it sounds quaint because nowadays it appears that anybody that says they're building a scooter startup or an autonomous vehicle startup (laughs) just pulls a chain and gets a billion dollars. But back then it was not the case, and so. The insight that my partners and I had was, what if we were that first check to somebody building something really useful in transportation, and uh, that was the origin of trucks, which we started a few years ago, and we've done 26 investments from that. So um, I saw it more as the the market really needs this, and we could see it less than uh, you know I was doing investing in the space for a long time because I wasn't. My experience is really more on the uh, on transportation and the theme. And my partners have more, had more direct investment experience when we started the fund.
0: Right. So what year was it that you started Trex? Uh,
1: we started investing in these companies um, in uh, late 2015. And so the fund itself started to kind of get off the ground. And, um, and then I was working at Stanford, left my job at Stanford, and then started focusing on trucks full time, and that's when we started. We made it a real fund, and uh, and that's what we've been doing ever since. And so, um, you know, autonomous vehicles and transportation as a place to put venture investment is a relatively new thing. Although it's funny because I was talking to somebody recently, and they're like, "Oh, you've been." doing this a long time and I'm like well it's only about three years so you know <laughs> feels like a long yeah time. I mean, well, <laughs> granted we we picked a bit of an empty hill when we started this idea of trucks and um but now of course it's a little more obvious some of the categories are a little bit more well developed in terms of the investment dollars going in them uh, but you know in picking this idea of transportation uh to invest in we always knew that there were going to be areas that were Oversaturated in some areas that were underappreciated, and if you could be smart enough to know where those gaps were or how people have, you know, maybe overestimated some things, you could make some great investment decisions. So that's what we hope to continue to do with trucks for many years and decades to come. Because as you've seen over the last, you know, couple of years of doing this podcast, there are areas of the market that are, you know, were wildly overappreciated the prices went up crazy. And now I think a lot of people are going out of those segments. And so you, as an investor, have to make some decisions about that. Are those people right in doing that? Is there still going to be value in those segments? Should I be investing now that the everybody else has you know left the room? So that's the fun part, I think.
0: Yeah. When you first started, how long did you think it would be before there was sort of a first commercial application of autonomous vehicles
1: Uh, i would say we were really optimistic in the beginning that we'd see something within 10 years Um, because at that point you know this was before most of the automakers had made big pronouncements about autonomy and certainly hadn't done acquisitions and their own internal engineering teams were not well built so you were looking at only a handful of startups that were doing for example, Robotaxi. And um, so our thought was, well, about 10 years from now, a lot of the stuff will have really great commercial appeal. So our investments in companies like Newtonomy, for example, um, what we didn't anticipate was that the incredible speed at which the tier one and tier two and the OEM companies would drastically change their R&D groups to support autonomy as a as a thing that they were going to really make part of their core strategy which accelerated a lot of the announcements i actually think our initial idea of the commercial timeline is probably going to be just as accurate as it was a number of years ago because as we've seen just because you make an announcement at ces doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen so you know the um i'm quite optimistic about the impact of autonomy over a long period of time and i'm pessimistic about it happening in the next 18 months. I think those are relatively silly and have driven a lot of frothy behavior in not only the investment market, but the media response to it. And the, I think the damage that that's done to the consumer in expecting that a lot of this change would happen in a hallelujah fashion. And um, in fact, it's going to be a very long time before you see a lot of this level five unstructured kind of autonomy in the market.
0: How do you think the investment by the large OEMs into autonomy changed the development process? Did it change the technology itself, or did it just provide some early exits for startups? Like, how, how do you think it impacted the That's market? That's a good question.
1: Uh, the There are a couple things that, you know, the OEM involvement beginning in early 16, which is really the moment. I think where a lot of the stuff starts to crystallize because of the GM cruise acquisition. Mm -hmm. Um, Around that time, a few things happened. One, the engagement between a startup and an OEM like GM or Toyota or a supplier Mm -hmm. like Valio or Bosch or someone, um, this changed the way that startups appreciated the path to production if they're going to sell something in a production vehicle and most of those startups really didn't understand you know when you build something for a production vehicle it has to go through you know R&D and advanced engineering and production engineering and that whole mechanism of as you go through that gauntlet you're getting um, more durable usually you're getting cheaper and smaller and things like that things that a production vehicle wants and that's been an interesting thing to watch that really the OEMs and the suppliers have forced upon startups rightly so, for some of these components. Um, Timeline-wise, I think it's made uh, a few of the, I I would imagine a a number of startups came in and were able to raise financing on ideas because they had been able to get really early contracts with automakers. So what signs would be referred to as a POC contract or um, uh, uh, early kind of engagement with a, a big company like a tier one or a supplier or a OEM. And a lot of those ideas I don't think would have been funded had they not had early POCs with uh, an OEM. So it changed the makeup of the startup landscaping as well for a few people. Um, And then finally, I think overall, it it made the discussion and the, the timeline aspect of autonomy became one of the most important parts of this. I mean, how many conferences have you been to where the fundamental question they're asking is when you know and if you look back years ago there there wasn't as much of a rush to the commercialization timeline in a lot of these discussions uh before sort of 2016
0: yeah you referenced a little bit kind of the the hype cycle that's happened between 2016 and today and now we're mm-hmm. kind of off the excitement and into the disillusionment mm-hmm. period, how do you see that going into 2019, uh, impacting the market, startups, mm-hmm. the scope of what people are doing?
1: As far as valuation goes, which is connected to a lot of other things, but speaking from a truck's perspective, we've seen prices go down about 30 percent from August of 2017. So that's pre-money valuation, in other words, what the founders expect their company is worth before any new new investment goes in when they come into our office, and that peaked around August of seventeen from the data that we see. So we've been paying, in other words, we're paying lower prices for the last year and a half, um, and I think there's probably another twenty or thirty percent that's going to come out of those prices over the next twelve months, based on some macro things and just based on. Um, some things we've been seeing Uh, and from my perspective it hasn't changed the the founder who is building something really valuable in transportation doesn't decide that they're going to not build a company in transportation because of valuation they're going to to do the same company they might change the trajectory of their financing or the timeline but they're not leaving because oh instead of you know getting a $8 $8 million pre-money valuation, they're getting at five. Um, so the true blue engineer who is building something uh, is still in it, and he or she is suffering less dilution from those prices, and we as investors are buying those positions at a lower price. So I think that's a really good thing. Um, what's not good, I think, is that uh, you'll probably have more of those seed stage teams Unable to get financing in later rounds because some of the A and B investors decided that, well, instead of having 30% of our portfolio exposed to transportation, we might want to have 10% or something. That might impact some teams that aren't able to get financing later. Um, but you know, startup investing in in many ways, I think of it like the art auction business. For some reason, the world has conspired to make us believe that high prices are really good, you know, and they're really only good for the one person that's selling the Chagall, you know, but everybody else really would benefit from paying lower prices. So, you know, this is the thing with a lot of these startups is that, um, you, you kind of have to really think about who benefits from incredibly high prices in the beginning or throughout the process. And, um, the answer, sadly, is it's rarely the founder who benefits from that. Um, in fact, most founders, even in an exit, will walk away with zero if you look at data from NVCA, So um, I think that paying lower prices and building the company um, in, in a, maybe a, at a different pace is what's going to happen. That still doesn't change the fact that it's expensive to live in the Bay Area and to hire Bay Area engineers. So uh, that will probably drive more creation of these kind of startups in other markets and ecosystems so one example from us is you know our last investment that we made uh, it's a company in kansas city and the one we're doing next week is a company in africa so um we're actively looking at other markets not for just for pricing but because the talent is starting to come from places that we didn't see three years ago
0: right so from a technology perspective would you say we're further along today with autonomy than you thought we would be, uh, you know, five or ten years ago? Mm -hmm. Um, And do you think that there are major hurdles uh, from a technology perspective, whether it's AI breakthroughs or needing a new type of sensor, what Mm -hmm. have you, in order to get to full autonomy?
1: Yeah, I think... There's, it's incredible the progress that certain components and certain parts of the market have made. Um, I actually think that one of the interesting areas is in the level zero until you get to level four. Um, if you, in general, say that those different ADAS systems, I believe that you know 18 months ago, a lot of people look down their nose at those systems and said, well, we're never going to need that because we're just going to go right to level five. And um, I actually think that there's a huge part of the market that is innovating on those level zero through three systems and that those are actually going to become more valuable because you have a couple interesting tensions at work. You have in general vehicles that can't support Twenty or thirty thousand dollars of extra hardware costs you're talking about maybe you know a level two system in a Mazda or a Toyota that might be only another thousand or two thousand dollars where you really have to have incredibly sophisticated hardware uh, software if you're going to run on this commodity hardware and that's an area of frankly wonderful opportunity for uh, for computer science engineers who are building in this space. And there's going to be a lot of, lot more vehicles that are level zero to three than they are four to five if you look at the next 10 years of vehicles on the road, of new car sales. And so opportunity-wise, it's big. Um, it plays to the advantages of those who are focused on really sophisticated software. And so an example of that would be a company like DeepScale, Run, is, basically allows really sophisticated algorithms to be squeezed to run on commodity hardware, you know, level two systems in an ADAS environment. And um, so I think we've seen a lot of great progress in these kind of areas of the market where years ago people would have said, that's not going to be valuable. But the the engineers kept working and kept making them more efficient. Um, and then on the on the market side, I think you know i don't know if any of us would have expected how fast the commercial trucking part of this was moving i mean we made a couple of early investments but we're really um quite enthusiastic about those structured environment av companies whether you're talking about long haul trucking or you know even things like agriculture mining construction things like that um there's really great need for it and the more and more you constrain the opportunity, the I think the faster your path can be to actual commercialization.
0: Yeah. Um, it seems like there are a number of companies that are constraining the problem set in order to make a product that is more realistic at this mm-hmm. point in time. Um, I think May Mobility, Drive AI, maybe in Texas, uh, Voyage mm-hmm. is doing Retirement Communities. Um, Do you expect to see more companies taking that route, um, in addition to the the ADAS opportunity that you mentioned, using a full autonomy but in a smaller
1: space? Sure. It's interesting because, you know, when May and Voyage and Drive started, I think a lot of the people believed, well, you know, that's gonna that's really gonna be totally irrelevant because we're gonna go to level five and it's funny because now a lot of the level five players are fundamentally doing level four deployments right and so they've come around to that notion of huh why don't we start with a really structured route Um, the difference i think which is really fascinating about drive and voyage and may is not only are they doing structured route autonomy but they're doing a fully managed transportation service Kind of the same way you think about Transdev or Viola, one of those companies, where they're not just building the vehicle and dropping it off to a city to to run it, but they're they're showing up, signing a contract with this either municipality or a private developer, and saying, you know, you we'll agree on a level of service for the next three or five years. You pay us, and we'll provide that and do all the maintenance and service and everything like that. And that's quite different. Um, and it's not really a startup that's aiming to to sell technologies and widgets to other companies. It's really trying to become a transportation service. And so we think there's great value in those, particularly because if you look at the cities where, you know, for example, for May, they're going after these really interesting urban areas that are the final destination points for the crews and Waymos and Ubers of the world that really will fun, will need to be in those markets. So um, we believe those are really valuable beachheads, and they'll be working with customers for years in getting that service to be really robust and hanging things in the infrastructure and generally getting to a, a much more sophisticated uh, product in those uh, particular l- locales and doing it safely.
0: Yeah. You, where do you see the business model going for those companies? Do they then expand like we used to do one route in Detroit, mm-hmm. and now we do six routes in Detroit, yeah. or is that how it works? Is it just sort of a slow expansion?
1: Yeah, the sort of idea is land and expand. You know, get a get a really a contract that makes sense for the business. Um, you have to stand up things like an operation center, like when, for example, when they did uh, their first rollout was in Detroit. And so they had to do, you know, they have to have a place physically to store the vehicles and where if they have to do service on the vehicles. And so once they get that up and running, which they in Detroit, for example, they launched in the spring, summer of 18. The next plan for those markets is you get more contracts that can be serviced by that same operations center. So in the same way you think about doing enterprise SaaS sales, get the first contract and then quote-unquote land and expand and that's what they'll do in those markets so um the the engineering team in conjunction with the partner will work on making that first route really reliable and then they'll look at other customers that could benefit from similar or adjacent routes and um, that's the way they'll do it now they also in parallel to that have been going out and getting new cities so um they've announced green rapids and Uh, They've announced Columbus, which they're live in, and Providence, and there's another one that we'll be announcing soon.
0: Great. You mentioned trucking. It seems like commercial trucking is a piece of autonomy that's moving more quickly, perhaps, than people had anticipated. It seems like an interesting space because, on one hand, it's a constrained problem set because most of the driving is on the freeway, On the other hand, it seems kind of dangerous because the vehicle's big and unwieldy and it can cause a lot of damage if there's a crash, Mm -hmm. especially at high speeds. How do you see the future arc of where the commercial trucking companies are going with us? Mm -hmm.
1: I think you'll see in the beginning, um, these are happening in, first of all, states where there's a regulatory framework for them to do it. And... If you look at a state like Florida, for example, um, it's actually one of the best states to do uh, automated commercial trucking. The other benefit of Florida is, of course, you have pretty good roads and pretty good weather most of the year. Now, there are exceptions to that, but um, certainly compared to Michigan or Wisconsin, you have much better road conditions, and you have also a number of toll roads that are kept in even better conditions. Um, So the structure of those Markets, whether you're talking about Florida or Texas or frankly a lot of the smile states, I think you'll see uh, automated trucking in those more uh, in the next few years than you will in areas of the north. Um, The business is really interesting in, for example, Florida, where you have a lot of ports, you have a lot of distribution centers, you have um, an interstate that runs the length of the state. Um, So there's a lot of Uh, structure to the state of florida that make automated trucking really quite good there Um, whereas if you could think about um, another state that might just have a couple of pass-through freeways but doesn't have a lot of distribution centers would be less valuable to to start in those places whether it's iowa or something like that Um, so the rollout will be based on the framework the quality of the environment the roads the weather the availability of the distribution centers that pertain to the customers, all those sorts of things. Um, when it comes to the the first part of your question of, is this a good idea to do because it's high speed? Um, yeah, there's some inherent risks in the speed that you know we're used to on the freeway. Most of the automated trucking uh, demos that we've experienced, both with our own companies and others, are generally little bit less than you're used to on the freeway. So they're doing 55 or 60 miles an hour. Um, Doesn't change the fact that it's also a lot faster than a Waymo vehicle in, you know, in Arizona. Um, But when you constrain to things like divided highways where you don't have intersections and hopefully no pedestrians and hopefully Mm -hmm. no bicyclists, um, there's a lot about that environment which is actually a lot safer than running in a mixed environment at 30 miles an hour into town. Um, And for the final, the first and last mile, there's a lot of human control that comes in, at least from Starsky's perspective. They use teleoperation for a lot of those segments. And um, they are going to be deploying, are going to be hiring and uh, using truck drivers to drive the trucks then. So um, there's a lot of things still to be figured out with that model um, but we believe that it's a, a great way to approach um, commercial trucking. And and if Stefan, the CEO of Starscoop, is here, he would, you know, something he says quite frequently is, you know, one of the biggest problems we're solving is that it's hard to get a long-haul truck driver to stay in that job for a long period of time. The replacement or the turnover rate on that, uh, that truck driver is usually about 100% a year, 110% a year so the the labor piece in long haul trucking is is an acute problem that um, fleets try to solve, and this could be one way to solve it. Um, Starsky has the benefit of they also employ truck drivers because they put them in their operation center, so they're not trying to be um, they're not trying to get the truck driver out of the equation and they're trying to change and put the truck driver where he or she wants to be, which is sleeping in their same bed at night
0: yeah, it seems like there's been A lot of opposition from the Teamsters and other folks and concern around truck driving jobs being Mm -hmm. lost to automation but at the same time there's this shortage of of truckers that that you're pointing out that there's a lot of turnover in the industry Um, how does tele teleoperation work uh, in that instance Mm -hmm. Um, are they actually kind of driving the truck over the internet Mm -hmm. from the warehouse to the freeway
1: mm-hmm. yeah so in some cases um, there's different types of teleoperation operation and the direct one-to-one control where you see someone turning the steering wheel and um, almost like the way you control a video game uh, remotely the low speed operations within uh, or outside of a warehouse is where you typically see that There's also a number of teleoperation commands that can be delivered to a vehicle. So, for example, things like, you know, could the vehicle be pulled over? Could the engine be restarted? Things that are kind of more pre-programmed. Those are also teleoperation and are not exactly doing a one-to-one control, but more about sending a command to a vehicle. Um, And then once you're on a road where you have um, a structure environment, you're going fully automated. Um, so there's a couple different sort of layers of teleoperation. And Starsky and a lot of companies are building this in-house where they they actually have a teleoperations team. We've also seen a lot of startups start trying to build a third-party service for teleop. Um, and, you know, there's two or three companies trying to do that. Uh, but we think teleop is a really an important part of automated vehicles for the next decade or so, or maybe more. Um, in fact, if you look at the regs and you know, uh California you could you could more or less parse that it's a required part of automated vehicle uh testing um that you have the ability to control the vehicle and if you read the read them in a certain way you could say that's pretty much putting teleoperations into those uh future laws around automated vehicles
0: yeah i think I think the California rules don't require you to actually be able to drive the vehicle remotely. The remote operator has to understand where the vehicle is and, right. and understand its status, but it doesn't preclude you being able to to drive it right. remotely, which I think, you know, a number of companies right. are looking to do. It seems like it's an interesting question around connectivity, mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of dr- driving it in real time as part of the business model. Versus you know maybe sending a command if the mm-hmm. vehicle is stuck seem like two different propositions, but yep. if you're actually driving in in real time with the video game controls um, how, do, how are companies managing the connectivity issue mm-hmm.
1: so having a map of of sort of heat map of connectivity is really important. Um, the starsky method of uh, finding the best connection is not a trade secret they use cellular bonding, so they basically are looking for the best connection at the time and, and picking that. It's not dissimilar from the system that you'd find on the top of an Amtrak that is looking or a, a city bus that's looking for a connectivity where it's basically hopping from the, to the best connection possible. Um, and you know, one of the things that Starsky and many other companies will have to do is probably work closely with telecom providers, not only in... Uh, as far as a map um, for today's connectivity, but also the planned rollouts of other towers and other services. Um, And when you get into higher speed connections, like with LTE and 5G, um, that's something where I actually believe that the telecom operators are going to provide a pretty interesting um, conduit to these automated vehicle companies. And you've seen a lot of them get quite involved. So, you know I know that Starsky has had a lot of conversations with them, and it wouldn't surprise me if you saw a deep relationship between some of the telecom providers and some of the automated vehicle companies for that reason
0: right well that's that's an interesting development. another approach um that we're seeing a more a more constrained use of autonomy is in the delivery space um I guess the idea of having a delivery vehicle that doesn't carry a human being in it gives you a little more freedom, both in terms of the form factor and being able to self-sacrifice and, and other aspects to it. I think Neuro is doing this, probably some other companies. What are you seeing in the delivery space, mm-hmm. and sort of how do you feel about that as a business model?
1: Well, the, <clears throat> when it comes to sort of B2B, I think it's great because in the same way you think about commercial trucking um, – if a vehicle were to leave a distribution center with humans loading, humans or machines loading into the back of the vehicle, the vehicle running an automated route and then arriving at a destination where there's people or machines to do unloading, um, you don't, that's a, because of the other parts of the ecosystem in a B2B context, um, you don't have to put somebody on board to solve some of these issues. Whereas, if we simply automate the pizza guy, um, it actually creates a problem for a lot of people. If you live in a, an apartment building and the pizza guy takes the pizza to your door, and now it's uh, there's a van outside says "Come down and get your pizza out." I actually don't think that's innovation. Um, <laughs> so, I'm from the the B to C, the consumer facing parts of those ideas. I think are not that great Um, you know the sidewalk robots for example um, they don't actually solve a lot of issues that a human can do pretty effectively for a consumer but in the B2B sense uh, if you're just running those sort of trunk routes and you have people on either end of that to receive or to to load then I think it can be a lot better Um, and so I like when the ideas are B2B focused and I do think in all those different segments of logistics, you'll have some kind of automated vehicle solution. Uh, we have an investment in another company that does things in kind of the middle mile, which is, um, you know, everything kind of UPS truck sized between a distribution center and a point of sale. Um, and that company is called Gaddock and they're fundamentally different from Starsky, but the customers still B2B It's not trying to deliver it, you know, deliver a pizza to you, for example.
0: Interesting. So speaking of different size vehicles and different form factors, I guess 2018 was the year that we really started to see electric scooters, electric bikes, and kind of a focus on small electric. Uh, What form factors do you think are going to be successful in that space?
1: Mm -hmm. It's It's a great question because, you know, as Interesting is the Segway um, was you know fifteen or twenty years ago. as it turns out, Segway has now really been able to have success with really a classic form factor, right that use a lot of the technology to um, and this interesting supply chain to make it a connected device. and um, but the idea of a scooter is you know at least a hundred years old. Um, it's not that form factor isn't necessarily new. It's the things around it that made it available for you to walk up with your phone and unlock it, um, and you know the bike is a pretty great form factor, and the electronics and things that make it connected are wonderful, but the bike itself is again you know over well over 100 years old, um, so it's amazing how technology has just made these old concepts almost new for some people. And uh, we've created some new business models that are sitting on top of classic shapes. So the thing that where I think we haven't seen is there's not a lot of utility to those vehicles other than one person going to a meeting. You know, the uh, San Francisco you know venture capitalist going to a meeting 14 minutes away is how most people think about scooter use and um, probably how a lot of those VCs do. But if you think about it from a different perspective, you know, where is the Ford F-150 of light electric vehicles, you know, and scooters, for example, or bikes most of the time are not great for a lot of the daily tasks. Like if you had to take a shared scooter to, you know, go to Safeway to buy groceries, you might go into the store, buy your groceries and come out and find somebody else has taken the scooter to take their trip. Or even if you were lucky enough to still have that scooter outside, where would you put your bags And scooters are fundamentally a, a two-handed operation. You can't really operate them with one hand because they're not balanced well. So they're not great for a lot of the uh, parts of life that we're used to. And so I'm, I think we're going to see a product development curve with a lot of new form factors. Not many of them are going to survive long term, but there's probably going to be one or two, quote-unquote, Ford F-150s of light electric vehicles that will be really interesting. Um So the problem, however, investing in those, I think, is that you might, you know, we could come up with a vehicle like that that might be a hit that unfortunately probably only has about six months of durability, not in the fleet sense, but in the intellectual property sense, because that idea will probably be copied by the supply chain and put into everybody else's fleet. So it's a difficult environment to design for.
0: What kinds of form factors do you think would work are, are we talking about something like a golf cart or a cargo bike or something that ups can use to know. do a delivery yeah, i don't
1: know i'm not i'm not a product designer so i don't <laughs> know what the right solutions are you know yeah. um micro as a term coined by horace dedu is you know 500 kilograms or less which is a pretty heavy vehicle um and so um you could definitely have Something that had more seats and more cargo space within that threshold, um, even if you had you know like something like a a Dutch cargo bike or more of a European city bike with more um, baskets and boxes hanging on it or around it would be really useful we we don't even have that, so I don't know what the right form factor will be um, for some of these other utility tasks but I definitely think that we'll see more of them in the fleet,
0: yeah, how do you feel about whether um you know the Europeans are the first to tell us um, that you know well, they ride in the snow in sure. Finland, right. you know <laughs> what's the matter with you guys right, right. Um, but i don't you know I kind of don't see that being as much an American market. I feel like we're more likely to build a different type of vehicle that protects you from the snow than we are to suffer the snow. But maybe that's just me. (laughs) And
1: and that would still be micro mobility. You know, if you have a covered vehicle or even one that had more creature comforts or maybe HVAC or something like that, that would still, if you made it dimensionally and and weight wise, you made it um, to the micro mobility standards. I think, you know, many of those ideas would still qualify for a, a lane, a bike lane. And would still meet the purpose. So we're still really early in this. Right now, you have micro mobility that really services a person with very little cargo on their on them, other than maybe a backpack. And that's kind of where the vehicles end in terms of their utility. So I believe that there's just a lot more out there that we could be designing for, and um, it will happen over the next few years because. As you've seen there's a lot of investment going into that space if you look at the total number of miles under you know five that we travel during the day it's a huge in some ways um, you know a significant portion of all the vehicle miles traveled so it's going to be an exciting one to watch and there's going to be a lot of changes in the business models and companies that um, will not be around you know some that are here now and appear are pretty really strong you know won't be around in a few years Um, but that's the kind of the way some of these markets evolve.
0: Do you think the development, uh, of micromobility and scooters and e-bikes is driving a different dialogue in cities around how we should allocate the right of way?
1: I hope so. I mean, in many cities it is right. But, um, we've put a lot of attention on, you know, making sure that scooters are parked in exactly the right spot and traveling at what speed. And, um, it's quite I think it's a bit myopic given all the other problems and vehicles and things that we just take for granted in a city so one of the great things out of the scooter you know wave of 2018 is I think it forcing some cities not all but some to think about all the different modes of transport and why they should exist and what sort of real estate should they take up and at what cost Um, and you know, over time, I believe that we'll probably have a more holistic view of all the different vehicles. But right now, you know, you fundamentally live in an area where via, the roads have been designed for vehicles. And the conversation around transportation is usually around level of service and how the vehicle can get through a certain roadway over a certain period of time. And we haven't designed those to be people-first um, you know, road segments. They're, they're really four four wheeled, six thousand pound automobiles. So I hope that we'll change that. And it's it's in these early conversations around scooters that are the kind of Trojan horse for those larger discussions.
0: It feels a little bit like a chicken and egg problem where you know, cities are asking, well, I don't know, how many people want to ride in these lanes? Should we have a protected lane for scooters and bikes? Mm-hmm. Well, there aren't that many of them. And, of course, there aren't that many because they're not allowing them or sure. pe- people don't feel comfortable riding yeah. in city traffic. So
1: but it's going to be interesting. Cost, you know, the cost of a, of a bike mile or micro-mobility mile um, versus the cost of a, a paved ro- a lane for automobile um, the amount of people you can move through it in micro-mobility is incredibly high, and especially given the cost. So if you're looking at it through the, the cold, hard lens of um, what are we really doing in terms of people throughput, you would immediately look at micro-mobility and expanding those lanes. And um, I think it's, you know, when you look at developments that were built, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, cul-de-sac kind of developments in suburban America without any sidewalks, you know, when when we look at places like that, you know, I often think like, wow, what a what a bizarre mistake that there's no sidewalks in this suburban part of Cleveland, for example, or Detroit. Um, and I think that's the same way we'll look at cities without micro-mobility lanes in the future, where you'll look at photos of, of cities and say like, oh my God, look, they had five lanes going <laughs> in one direction and all the lanes were for big Cars and trucks, like, why didn't they think differently about that? So, in a future sense, I think that's how we'll feel about micro mobility lanes, and you'll be conspicuous by your absence if you haven't put them down or apportioned them from the vehicle lanes.
0: Right. So, uh, another Part of the dialogue we've seen this year is the question of public acceptance and public education around autonomous vehicles and even micromobility and getting sort of the general public beyond Silicon Valley more comfortable with these technologies. And I know we saw at CES the announcement of PAVE, a new kind of education campaign and group. Um, How do you feel about public education? What roles should companies be playing in that? Mm -hmm. Um, And do you think it's an issue? Is it something that the public, once the technology is ready, is just going to accept? Or do you think that's going to be uphill?
1: I, I often think these public education, just the idea of public education, sounds like the public's an idiot and he needs to be convinced of something, you know? And so the position of a lot of this when people talk about this stuff, I find to be a little bit disingenuous. It's almost like, you know, if only they would just realize our vision of this future, how much better their lives would be. In reality, what they're saying is how much easier it is for me to roll out my business if I can convince these people of something that they don't yet understand. And um, I, so I feel like a lot of those are done uh, maybe for purposes that, they haven't told you about. Um, now a lot of these technologies are quite new. So, um, one of the, I think one of the best things that can be done is if everybody just used the same words to describe (laughs) things, you know, like I, I, I still marvel at how we're, you know, Tesla was able to call their system autopilot and then sort of, you know, wink about the fact that, you know, people are using these systems um, when they they fundamentally believe they're "quote unquote" self-driving systems, and they're not. So, I think step one, if if I was ruling the world, would be: could you people just simply talk about things in the same way before you start to evangelize your systems to the public? Um, and we're we're not there yet, so um, that's disappointing. Um, public acceptance for scooters is interesting because. Scooters right now um, are really, they're poorly designed vehicles that have mostly been, um, the demand has has shown how weak the, the product design has been, but people are still using them. So there was almost zero to very little in the way of public education about how to ride a scooter, um, but people just started using them, right? And they use them so much that they've broken them because they're not designed for that. Whereas if you think about, you know, go back to the original Segways from 20 years ago, I mean, it takes a half hour or more to <laughs> learn how to use a So there's a ton of public education and very little public acceptance. Yeah. Um, and so that's one of the remarkable things about micromobility is the simpler you make these systems, you kind of don't have to tell people the, about the benefits of it or even how to operate them. Um, they mostly just do it. And uh, um when it comes to automated vehicles, there are some fundamental changes, but I don't feel that it's the problem of the public that hasn't understood it. I feel like we're in the early days of a field robotics initiative that still has a lot of things to figure out that are not the public's fault.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The you know, when you told people about Uber in the early days, like, no, really, you're going to like call a stranger over mm-hmm. the internet on yeah. your phone and get in their car. Like, it seemed pretty crazy. Right. But now, like, my mom uses it. Sure. So I, I feel like once a service works, and there's value, and people could see, wow, this mm-hmm. is great. This is really convenient. Uh, the adoption kind of flows from that. Yeah. And I feel like the fact that TNCs have been accepted generally uh, really paves the way for autonomous ride services that are similar. Right. And in some ways the hard part of that was the idea of calling a car on your phone and getting into it. Um, But again, people have to trust the technology and, you know, I don't know that there's any way to educate for that until the service is actually available.
1: I mean, most of the people who ride in automated vehicles, for example, in the May network, you know, they've had tens of thousands of rides and, you know, over time they don't talk about the autonomy piece. They talk about getting to, you know, the parking lot on time. And so they're, you know, in a, if you take a broad stroke over the May surveys from some of their early deployments, um, it's that it's just they're thinking about the utility of the service not that you know there's a particular kind of lidar on the front of the car um and so that's where you want to be with all these is that you just really want to make them totally useful to the consumer and they use it over and over again
0: right Uh, Final question. Uh, What about flying cars? Where are you on uh, vertical takeoff and landing? How do you feel about using airspace for autonomy? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, We've, you know, we're not, um, I would say most of the stuff we've done has been on the road. We do have a few investments in, um, in things that fly. One of them we did very early was a company that was trying to build a, um, really more of an ADAS system for helicopters, um, what they would call a pass or, you know, advanced pilot assistance system, um, called Skyrise, And that company is doing quite well and, um, is kind of a different approach to using existing hardware, existing helicopters to do that. Um, and then another company, uh, we invested in is doing really heavy, uh, uh, cargo in the air. So if you could think about, you know, almost the, the equivalent of a, uh, 53 foot trailer, um, but moved in the air, particularly over supply routes where you might not have a roadway. So if you were going to take things, you know, in a remote environment, for example, to a, um, uh, in deep into Canada or to Alaska, things like that. Um, that company is called camp six. And, um, so we've invested in those two primarily because we really like the founders and we like the business model of what they were going after so we've explored that a little bit um, but as far as a car that you know, you're driving and then you flip a switch and it becomes a plane um, I don't I think of those almost like a bit of a mermaid um, and I'm not sure that we'll find the perfect plane or perfect car for either of those applications and try to combine it into one is is really a little bit difficult. It's definitely a difficult engineering challenge, and we've seen a couple of interesting pitch decks, but nothing that we felt like we needed to do.
0: What about the Kitty Hawk approach with sort of the, basically a a helicopter Mm -hmm. um, transporting people?
1: I think it looks really interesting on a YouTube video. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of things things that look interesting (laughs) on YouTube, though, doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become great investments for us, Um, but it could be that you know we're just simple kids from the midwest that that don't get it so
0: well i guess i guess we'll have to wait to see, yeah, wait what, to see. what what that all ends up looking like well thanks so much for taking the time thanks to be so much on the for podcast me on. appreciate it appreciate it take care thanks again to riley for joining us and thanks to all of you for listening if you're enjoying the podcast please leave us a review or share on social media to help others find the show you can find the show notes for this episode and for all of our episodes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.